Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I'm going to have an overview of the 2022 MIPS guide. Uh, specifically, the reason that I'm going to do this is because in the past, for smaller offices, and that's mostly what I work with, is, is offices that are 15 providers or less. Uh, for smaller offices, there was often a challenge to know when you should use MIPS or when you should try to submit information to MIPS. And with the inflationary rates as they are, any amount of benefit that you can um, add to your practice while not having to expend a ton of extra resources, I think can be pretty beneficial to most small practices that are submitting to Medicare. And there's been some exclusions in 2022 that allow MIPS achievement for smaller practices to be much more uh, probable and possible so that you are getting the uh, the elevated payment, the increased payment, uh, as opposed to a decreased payment. So I want to cover this with you so you can start to consider and think maybe there's still enough time left in, the, in 2022 to uh, make some of these adjustments and changes. Today I want to talk about the MyDay Multifocal for just a second. It has been a really great thing in our practice for our patients who are presbyopes of all areas, but you know those tricky presbyopes are always the ones that are kind of emerging, where they don't want to give up any of their faraway vision, but they're having some struggles up close. And so what uh, the MyDay Multifocal has been able to do for us is to allow those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily. And then as we have those patients progress into other levels where they need more ad powers. It's been a nice, smooth transition. So the ultimate hurdle that we've seen in our practice before the MyDay Multifocal was that we'd have patients who would resist any transition to a multifocal lens because of that distance blur. We just haven't seen that. So if you haven't started using MyDay Multifocal in your practice, I would encourage you to start. Check it out. Uh, contact, reach out to your Cooper reps for those trial lenses uh, and commit to MyDay Multifocal for your patients. I think they're going to like it. If you haven't checked out MacuHealth yet for your patients in Category 1 through Category 4, I think there's a lot of evidence that you should be considering. The first is, if we just look at AREDS 2 and what they, they talk about, MacuHealth is, a, so for patients in Category 3 and Category 4 um, AMD, MacuHealth is a great option for them that follows that entire, um, that entire protocol, and it also adds mesozeaxanthine to the mix, which if you look at some of the evidence, I believe shows me that it's going to thicken the macular pigment better than without mesozeaxanthine. It also uses the a correct AREDS2 dose of zinc uh, at 25 milligrams, and so you don't have to worry so much about the potential side effects of zinc. The other thing to, to think about, and it's beyond the scope of this, although you've probably heard me talk on other podcasts, is that in patients in category one and two, there may be some additional benefit uh, to supplementing them with something that may be a little bit less than the AREDS 2, so you don't have to add as much to it. And that's where I use the MacuHealth LMZ3. And so I think if you haven't done this yet, I'd consider MacuHealth in your practice and for your patients. And it's been great for my patients, and, um, and we really feel like we can have the ability to uh, help those patients in all categories of macular degeneration. I'll start out by saying that the AOA has provided a uh, pretty great guide for this, and uh, and so that's that's something that if you wanted a written version of this, I'm not going to recreate that. You can use their written version. I'll put a link in the show notes today. The other thing to know is that right off the bat, you know your your requirement to uh, submit to MIPS 
uh, or face a pay reduction is um, is the same as it's been in the previous years. Essentially, what happens is there's three uh, things that allow you to have an exclusion. So I'll, I'll flip this the other way and say that you are required to report. If you do not want the option of a or the the reduction in payment that that can come, which again is close to 10% reduction. There can also be close to a 10% increase if you participate in MIPS, and that's really where it starts to make a difference. So imagine that you're submitting less than the low volume threshold. Uh, let's say you're submitting about ninety, well, $89,000 a year to, to uh, Medicare, and you get a reduction of, uh, or, or you, you could get an increase by opting in to MIPS you could get an increase of almost 10%. That's a $9,000 increase in payment, essentially, very close to it, uh, in payments from Medicare on that year. And that becomes more important over years. But again, that that can help offset some of the costs. And I'll tell you that if you have um, a up-to-date EHR, I suspect, and, and the EHRs that I am familiar with, they have a process that's not too difficult to attain some of the things that we're going to talk about here. So first thing I want to talk about is what, um, where you can have exclusions or who must report to MIPS or suffer a payment reduction. So if you participate um, in Medicare, uh, and obviously that's why you'd want to submit to MIPS, is that uh, your Medicare billings must be more than $90,000 and you must see more than 200 Medicare patients in total or collectively and per collectively provide more than 200 covered services to Medicare beneficiaries over the course of a year. And so essentially your your thought process should be first, am I over those thresholds? Am I going to um, in, in my practice, am I going to submit $90,000 or more to Medicare in 2022? And I'm going to provide uh, care to more than 200 Medi Medicare patients and see more than than 200 services for those beneficiaries. If the answer is yes to all three, then you really are you don't have a choice unless you want to choose to have a payment reduction. You do need to submit to MIPS. However, you can. Um, have exclusions. And so in the past, most of the time, because inflation wasn't huge and, and many pra practices weren't sub, uh, submitting a lot of, of uh, dollars to, to Medicare, there's a whole number of doctors that were right under that low volume threshold, meaning that they weren't submitting $90,000 uh, to Medicare or providing care for 200 doc, uh, patients or providing um, less than 200 professional services in that course of a year. So they would have met the low volume threshold. And in order to achieve all the things required for MIPS, most of the time those practices didn't think it was worth it. So here, what I want to talk about is where it might be worth it. So again, if you are billing maybe less than $90,000, but but you where it starts to become um, something significant, maybe $70,000 for you is significant, $80,000, where a 10% bonus could actually start to move the needle a little bit for you. If, if that is you, then you might want to opt in to submission. So when you opt in for submission, when you are not required to uh, submit for MIPS, you have the option to what, what they call opt in. And that will allow 
for a payment increase or a payment reduction or a neutral payment. And so obviously you would only want to opt in uh, if you know you're going to meet these uh, these requirements. And so the the big caveat that I want to point out, and we're going to touch on this again, is that one of the most cumbersome things for most independent uh, practitioners or smaller provider pools uh, that was really hindering for them to in- integrate uh, the technology needed to satisfy all of the things for MIPS was um, what's called promoting in- interoperability. Now, there's a lot of ways that you can do interop- interoperability um, by uh, submitting information back and forth through secure portals to other referral sources, so doctors that you might be referring to or doctors that might be referring to you. However, in order to make that meaningful interoperability, um, there is quite a few challenges and logistical things that need to be ironed out within some additional um, resources for most EHRs that add cost. So in the past, that added additive cost may have been, again, sort of prohibitive for people to want to opt in. Well, this year, what they're allowing is if you are a, a practice pool, uh, so for 2022, if you are a, a, if your practice has 15 or fewer uh, providers, whether you meet the low volume threshold or do not meet the low volume threshold, if you have fewer than 15, uh, then you do not have to use the promoting interoperability measures in order to get your total MIPS score. And so instead of having four weighted performance categories, you've got three, improvement activities, quality, and cost. And so the, the thing that you can mostly control uh, in your practice is going to be your improvement activities and your quality. And I'll tell you, for improvement activities, you're pro- if you're a member of the AOA, you're probably, um, you can probably checkmark at least one of those. If you have an EHR that has a portal for your patients, you can checkmark the other. And so you're probably... Um, achieving improvement activities. And then it comes down to quality. Uh, Quality, again, is something that you can control. And most of the quality comes in from provisional reporting of specific uh, data related to glaucoma patients, um, diabetes patients. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. So big picture is, uh, and then cost is something that they they take that is just purely based on your submissions. So they look at, at the cost of your care, and uh, and then they average that cost or compare that cost to other providers, and and uh, and give you a score for that cost. So um, so essentially, I want to focus on those three: promoting interoperability. If you are um, a group of more than 15, you probably have an infrastructure in place already to do that if you're going to uh, participate with MIPS in order to, re- to um, minimize any pay reduction or maximize any pay increase. This is not really for your office if you have more than 15 providers. Uh, for your office, we're going to focus on why you would want what you're going to do if you decide that you want to, um, to try to uh, either opt in or mandatorily report um, for, for your MIPS final score. Alrighty. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is quality. And, and in order for quality to be considered, you want to try to report on a hundred percent of your patients during the entire calendar year. What's required is 70% of your patients, but really they're recommending a hundred. And I think from a practical standpoint, it is easiest to try to approach uh, just every patient that you see. This is not just Medicare patients. It is also patients that have any 
that have any other payers associated to them because it's going to aggregate data from your EHR uh, associated with all your your payments or all your patients. Alrighty, so um, when we think about quality, that's 30% of your total score. So if you're thinking about quality, six quality measurements are needed. So you want to pick six. And then, um, and then if you if you look at those six, uh, essentially they're going to come down into a few buckets. And most practices uh, are going to look at uh, reporting factors for primary open angle glaucoma, uh, diabetic retinopathy, and communication of that diabetic retinopathy, a diabetes eye exam. That's number three. Most patients. They may also add another one for glaucoma in terms of reduction of intraocular pressure. That's that's uh, four. And then you can um, think about other screening measures. So some might might look at high-risk medications in older adults, blood pressure, um, and then tobacco cessation. Those three, you're going to usually pick two of those three uh, to, to round out your six reporting categories. Uh, the bottom line is that your EHR probably has a set of all of these or a set of specific ones that that you can follow specific steps to achieve each one of these. And they ought to, based on the diagnosis code, be auto-triggered. And most, uh, most of the um, EHRs, again, that I've worked with, they will auto-trigger based on diagnosis code. And then, again, you have to make sure that you're clicking buttons in the correct way. That stinks. I know. I'm... I'm just the messenger. I'm not the I'm not the purveyor of this uh, of this entity. But um, but yes, you do have to usually click boxes in specific ways. But once you figure that out, I'll tell you that once you figure out exactly the the steps that you need to to do to meet those six criteria that you decide you're going to meet, then the quality stuff is usually pretty easy. Like you you'll probably if you follow that pattern or your scribes follow that pattern, you'll find that you're you're hitting a hundred percent. You're not your numerator and your denominator. Uh, are going to wind up being very close to 100%. As far as cost is concerned, that's another 30%. Again, um, we're going to miss a a certain portion of this because of your promoting interoperability, but that just means that that promoting interoperability will be spread across these other three. So essentially, your 30% of of your MIP score is due to cost, and it's an attempt to measure how much you cost, your your practice costs, costs Medicare to provide care to patients. And, um, and there's really nothing for you to submit when that score is analyzed. It's derived from calculators based on your claims, as I said before, and, um, and certain conditions that you are also coding uh, and reporting when you are, are putting those codes. And this, this is pretty vague, but it would it would make the case that if you had a patient that has multiple conditions, you know, when we think about uh, the complexity of a patient, if one provider uh, bills a hundred dollars for a nine two zero one four, and another provider bills fifty dollars for a nine two zero one four, I mean, I, I know these are not it's not what I'm recommending, but the point is is that imagine those two provider pools. And both of the diagnosis codes were cataracts for each one of those uh, patients and each one of those providers, and that was the only code that was that was um, that was used for that that bill that was put on the CMS fifteen hundred form and that was submitted to Medicare. If that was the only code, then Medicare wouldn't have any idea that. Uh, the differences in care that may have been provided to each one of those patients. All they got to see was what was the diagnosis? What was the CPT code? How much did I pay for that CPT code? 
However, if this patient, if, if provider A that charged $100 and was also monitoring for that uh, comprehensive eye exam and was also monitoring the patient as a glaucoma suspect because that patient, in fact, was a glaucoma suspect and, uh, and also uh, monitoring that patient's ocular surface disease as well as their cataracts, and they reported that by um, marking, you know, including the diagnosis code for cataracts and dry eye and glaucoma suspect, low risk or high risk, as much specificity as they can. Now, all of a sudden, CMS may be able to tease out the data why there might be a difference. Now, the fee for the, the service will probably be the same, but they could actually then say, well, maybe Dr. A uh, is providing, um, even though they cost more, maybe providing care that is more comprehensive or more detailed than provider B, who is charging us less, but only linking one code with that specific um, with that specific uh, CPT code, one ICD code with that CPT code. So the bottom line is that um, that they they can scale that based on the complexity of the case that they are seeing in the numbers that you're reporting with diagnosis codes along with the CPT codes. Now, uh, so that's that's cost. So we've we've covered quality, we've covered cost. We're going to talk about improvement activities. And again, this is going to be um, it's kind of round out for smaller practices. It's going to round out the uh, the score that you have. Now, uh, there are for small practices, you need to select what would they call a high, one highly weighted uh, improvement activity or two medium weighted improvement activities. So uh, if we're going to talk about a highly rated uh, improvement activity, there are two of those. One is called engagement of new Medicaid patients and follow-up. Uh, and so essentially what you're doing is seeing how new and follow-up Medicaid patients uh, in a timely manner, and you're including individuals duly eligible for Medicaid and Medicare, and then they're, they're qualifying a timely manner as, as 10 business days. So again, you know, I think, I think this might be a little bit more challenging for most people to track uh, my, I, I would advocate that you would you would select two, and I'll talk about those two medium performance uh, indicators that uh, you might want to consider. The other high one in a second. The other high one that you want to think about uh, would be collection and follow up of patient experience and satisfaction data on beneficiary engagement. So what this means is you're collecting. Uh, and following up with patients' experience and satisfaction data on beneficiary engagement, including development of, a uh, of a, an improvement plan. So one of the things that you could consider would be, well, you know, do you reach out to your patients and ask them about their satisfaction with your services? Do you, do you encourage people to give you different reviews? Do they score you? Well, if they do, you could utilize those scores and then have a plan to try to improve those scores. So let's say you analyze your your reviews of the last um, you know the last six months and part of that analysis finds that you're you're taking too long you know one of the common themes that that patients may report would be that they're spending too much time waiting for an appointment uh, and so one of the things that you might do to to uh, remedy that is to put plans in place to shorten wait times for appointments both in the office and then you know, after when a patient needs care, how long it's taking them to get in. So you might actually have a, a brief written plan on how you're going to address uh, the patients who need um, who need uh, a an appointment uh, at a more timely fashion. 
Then there's these other mediums. So again, you're, you might select one of those two that might satisfy it. Then you have these kind of medium weight. And so again, if you're a small practice, you only need two of these medium weights. So either one of the high weighted that I just mentioned, or two of the medium weighted. Now, um, one is comprehensive eye exams. And so in this case, what you're doing is you're essentially promoting the importance of a comprehensive eye exam, which may be accomplished by any one or more of the following. And then they go about uh, a number of things. One of them is different campaigns. So think about your eyes campaign is specifically referred to by the AOA documents um, or other or allowing patients to have access to other um, resources that discuss no cost eye exams. So essentially, um, you're finding areas to promote comprehensive eye health, and that is an improvement activity. And then the other one that I think that uh, most of us, if we have EHRs, probably have access to is a patient portal. So essentially, um, do you provide access to patients uh, through a patient portal that allows the, that patient to engage in a bi-directional information exchange? So let's say that you know there's a, a website that can be linked through your website that allows a patient to log in and uh, and access their charts. One of the advantages from a practice standpoint is some patients like to have re have their records. So you're sitting there trying to print them off, getting records releases, et cetera. You don't have to do that anymore. You basically can can refer that patient to their portal and you you can uh, give them their access uh, through their normal, you know, one one thing I always say is make it easy. If they need to create a username and password, maybe your username is, is automatically created through your EHR, uh, may take a few seconds to copy their existing um, email address. And then, uh, and then hit a random um, hit a random generator for the password. You could write the password down along with the the um, the web address using a QR code, or they can type the web address in. And all it says is your pass your username. So to protect HIPAA, your username is the email that you gave us before. Your password is this, right? You write your password down, and so you're not putting both on the same um, document. And now all of a sudden you've satisfied your engagement of patients through that um, patient portal. So I think those are probably the most common two things that will be super easy for you to integrate in your practice and, um, and can achieve uh, this, this level of uh, improvement activities for 2022. So, um, and then again, we're not going to talk about uh, improving interoperability because the logistics of that for a smaller group of, of, of docs is typically uh, more challenging to do because of the infrastructure required. So in summary, you should consider submitting to MIPS. Whether you're required to or opting in, you should consider whether or not that dollar value raise that you're going to get uh, in 2023 is worth the efforts of the things you're already doing with your, within your EHR. When I work with, with practices to do that, this, I find that within maybe an hour of our sitting down and kind of sorting through what's required with their EHR, we can find processes that they're already either achieving most of these things or they can refine uh, pretty quickly to, um, to amplify uh, and, and hit their, uh, their quality payments and their increase in MIPS score. So again, um, think about your quality, think about your, um, your improvement, and think about your cost and how reporting other things can impact your cost. And then remember that even if you're not re required to do it, you may decide to, to um, submit for MIPS 
because of, of the ability to increase payment with your low volume threshold. With that, uh, I will put the links in today's show notes. They are uh, good resources. I still think there's time for most practices to go through and, and see if they can achieve this. I think it probably would be worth your, your time, especially if you're not hitting your low volume thresholds. And with that, have a great week. I'll talk to you on the next one.